Good morning, Covenant College. Good to see you all. Uh, I want to start out this morning with a serious question. Are your friends sometimes a little bit flaky? Be honest. I have another more delicate but still serious question. Are you sometimes known to be a flaky friend? Hmm. Awkward. <clears throat> I'm not going to bother defining terms here because I'm guessing most of us have some idea of what it means to be on the receiving end of flaky and even to be, you know, a flake. Now, I'm not here to talk this morning about flakiness, at least not directly, but I would like to spend my time here with you this morning reflecting a little bit on friendship. Friendship is a foundational human relationship that doesn't get the love and attention that we usually give to its flashier cousins, you know, dating, romance, and marriage. And that's a shame, because I would argue that friendship is more important than any of these to our health, both as individuals and as a society. We can live content faithful and happy lives without romance, dating, or marriage. But we can't live without friendship. We simply can't. I've watched Covenant College students over many years, and I know that you take your friends and your friendships very seriously. You have strong feelings about your friends and their significance in your lives. You're fiercely loyal. You love one another deeply. As important as it is for you to earn your degree while you're here at Covenant, and I desperately hope that you will, an arguably more enduring legacy of your time here will be the friendships you are right now building. Having said that, it's also true that we often feel insecure about our friendships, never entirely confident about where we stand with one another. Do my friends really like me? Do they have my back? Can I trust them? Do they see me? Do they love me? Many of us ponder how it's possible on a mountaintop filled with hundreds of faithful, like-minded, fun-loving Christians to still struggle with painful feelings of loneliness and isolation. It's real. Such feelings of insecurity reflect larger patterns in our society. We're part of a culture that is today struggling under clouds of anxiety, loneliness, and anger. We can see it in our politics, we can see it online, we can feel it in our bones. Angry political discourse, the lingering aftereffects of an isolating, demoralizing pandemic, and that all-purpose villain social media so often lauded for its promise of connectedness, we more often experience it by doom-scrolling our news feeds and self-loathing aloneness, watching everyone else we know having happy, beautiful lives. A rising tide of American adults today feel unseen, unknown, and unwanted. The demographer Daniel Cox argues that Americans, especially single men, 
are experiencing what he calls a friendship recession. We yearn for connection, for community, for belonging, and we struggle to find it. There's never been a time when we've needed the powerful presence of friendship more, and never a time when friendship feels more difficult to come by. So, we need to talk about friendship. Let me say that I am not an expert on the subject, nor do I take up the topic because I'm an especially good friend. I'm as flaky as anyone. Ask my friends, Kelly Capick and Jeffrey Morton, they've seen flaky. Or ask my wife, well, don't, don't. <laughs> Maybe. No, this is a subject I've come to because I've grown deeply concerned about it as a problem among us and within our society. We're friends starved, and it shows. So during our brief time today, I'd like to take up three questions. First, why is friendship so important? Secondly, what do we owe our friends? And third, how does our friendship with Jesus form and transform our friendships with one another? So first, why is friendship so important? Aristotle considered friendship the highest, most consequential good in all of human life. No one would choose to live without friends, he wrote in his Nicomachean Ethics, even if he had all other good things. Put another way, there is nothing in the world available to us that's worth having in exchange for our friends. As he saw it, friendship isn't an optional human relationship. It's as necessary as any other basic human need, food, clothing, shelter. Aristotle further argued that there are three sources of friendship that speak to three different dimensions or levels at which we connect to other people as friends. The first is what he called profitability or utility. Friends do things for one another. They provide help, support, access to opportunities and resources. Friends advocate for us. They let us use their connections, maybe their pool. They help us move. They let us borrow their cars and their clothes. In other words, friends are useful. We lean on our friends and benefit from their resources. This is an obvious and important part of friendship. But it can also create some complications. How much are these relationships a means to an end? Right? How much are our friendships merely transactional? Do you ever find yourself measuring your friendships by the benefits they provide you? This is one of the reasons very wealthy people struggle to know if they have any genuine friends. It's a problem that I do not have. So Aristotle's second source or level of friendship is what he called pleasure. We connect to other people because we enjoy their company and take pleasure in the same things. Shared tastes in music, books, sports, movies, hobbies, and other life passions. Friends at this level tell good stories. They know good restaurants, they host great parties, they make us laugh. In other words, friends are fun. 
you probably had the experience of establishing friendships driven by such common interests. And let's face it, a friendship with joy, without joy is no friendship at all. But shared hobbies aren't quite enough to produce enduring friendships. Social scientists observe that guys especially struggle to make connections with guy friends that move beyond common interests and activities. One man interviewed for a study on friendship admitted that he had played poker every Wednesday night for many, many years, sitting beside the same friend, but couldn't remember ever having had a single conversation about his wife, about his children, or any other part of his personal life. Aristotle understood that neither utility nor pleasure are adequate to sustain healthy, long-lasting friendships over time. Merely useful friendships are too easy to exploit and abuse, while merely pleasurable ones don't provide sufficient depth for meeting, depth for meeting our, our deeper emotional and spiritual needs. So Aristotle identified the third and highest source of friendship, and that is virtue. Virtue refers to the admirable, admirable qualities we see in our friends that draw us to them, their goodness, their trustworthiness, their bravery, their wisdom, their kindness, their humility, and their capacity for love. A person might be useful to me, person might make me laugh and share my passion for the Cleveland Browns. It's pretty awesome. Thank you. But if that person's deceitful, cruel, and can't be trusted with my secrets, is that person really a friend? In other words, a friend is someone whose character you admire and he longed to be more like. Someone who you enjoy and love for who they are. And in order to know who they are, you need to entrust, you need to enter their experience and allow them to enter yours. We understand both from scripture and experience that God made us for attachment to the other humans. Not just attachment, but intimate attachment. The kind of intimacy is foundational to our humanity. When the Lord God in Genesis 2 said, it is not good for a man to be alone, he wasn't only speaking about the bonds between a husband and a wife. He was reflecting the fact that he made us relational creatures who draw strength and nourishment from our connections to each other. Well, nearly all of us will have experienced our earliest relationships of attachment within our own families. We all need intimate bonds that go beyond those alone. Our hearts crave intimacy the intimacy of dear friends. We long to see and be seen, to love and be loved, to know and be known. Longings met uniquely within the frame of true friendship. This important insight reveals to us the ways in which deep and enduring friendships are formative relationships. They are the spaces that God uses to form the people that we are becoming. It's equally important to remember that bad and toxic friendships, devoid of virtue, can harm and deform us. Your parents were right when they worried about the kinds of friends you were making and the bad or good influence they were having on you, and you on them for that matter. Theologian Paul Waddell calls friendship a school of love. 
the relationship where we learn the arts and skills of loving. So if friendship is a school of love, my question for you is, what are you learning from your friendships? What are you teaching your friends about love? That leads me to my second question, what do you owe your friends? And that might seem like an odd one. Friendship is a voluntary business, right? Unlike most formative relationships, you know, parent, child, teacher, student, coach, athlete, even husband and wife, these are formative relationships that are bounded by certain kinds of duties and responsibilities. While people can enter and exit friendships without fanfare or formality. This is why friendship is often considered a purer, a more genuine kind of relationship. It explains why so many husbands feel compelled to say, I married my best friend. What he's really saying is, my relationship with my wife is a contract filled with obligations, but the one I have with my best friend is free and authentic. So we're not used to thinking of friendship in terms of duty. Asking what we owe our friends feels somehow wrong. Since friendship is voluntary, you might reason, I don't know my friends a thing. Behold, the logic of the flaky friend, right? In real life, at the ground level, I think we all know this isn't true. Of course we have obligations to our friends. It's just not always clear what they are. Let's first concede that every friendship is different. The term itself is pretty vague, describing a whole host of different kinds of relationships from the dude I met an hour ago and took down his phone number to the friend in whom I've trusted my secrets for every day of my life since I was five. I call them both friends. So it's confusing. The vagueness of the friendship category makes it a lot harder for us to answer the question, what do we owe our friends? It's important to acknowledge that we don't owe friendship to anyone or to everyone. Yes, Scripture requires us to care for and give ourselves in service to our neighbors, which is literally all people that God places along our path. See the Good Samaritan for more on that. However, we do not owe all neighbors the intimacy and obligations of friendship. For most of us, the bonds of enduring friendship will be secured among a relatively small group of people, a group whose composition will change over time. Many in your immediate group of friends may not be close to you in five or ten years, and that's a little bit maybe hard for you to accept, but it's, it's true. Even those of you planning weddings right now with 14 groomsmen and 14 bridesmaids, I think you know, come on, I know you love them all. Friends aren't necessarily for forever. Some friends drift apart and friendships fade due to time, distance, and circumstance. It's sad but true. Other friendships end abruptly, sometimes after trials of conflict, division, and pain. Some can be mended and reconciled. Some can't. A few years ago, I had to end a friendship with one of my closest friends one of my oldest and closest friends, and it was, it was not easy. He willfully and repeatedly violated his marriage vows, that I stood beside him as he made before God, and was unrepentant. I learned in the midst of that great brokenness 
that the bonds of our friendship were not indestructible. I simply couldn't go on with a friendship pretending that all was fine, standing by as he left his family in ruins. I still sometimes awaken in the night wondering if I did the right thing. I don't know. I pray for my former friend. So after all that, what do we owe our friends? Well, I think true friendship calls on us to take responsibility for another person and in turn to entrust ourselves to the watchful care and accountability of another. I've got your back. That's the words of friendship. Do you feel responsibility for your friends? What does that even mean? At the very least, I think it means making conscious efforts to see, to know, and love them at their best moments and at their worst. To lift them up when they're down, to walk beside them in challenging times, and to confront them in their sin. As a friend, you're signing up to be a witness to their lives. The good, the bad, and the ugly. To know their stories. To recognize their scars. To know what makes them laugh. And to understand what makes them crazy angry. To defend their reputations when they're not around and to gently chastise them in private when they've been jerks and fools. Let me be clear, you are not your friend's therapist. You are not your friend's pastor. You are not your friend's mother or father. Most importantly, you can't be Jesus for your friends. You may, however, need to point your friends in the direction of help that you can't provide yourself. You may need to offer words of comfort and advice. You may be occasionally called upon to sit with them in silent solidarity as they suffer and grieve. To rejoice with them in seasons of celebration and success. And again, to speak hard truths into their lives that they probably don't want to hear. To hold their stories and secrets and their shame in loving confidence. There are things in some, and in some cases hard things, that I know today about myself only through the honest voices of friends speaking into my life. There are also parts of me that only exist in the company of friends in specific combinations. Should God allow me to outlive some of these dear friends, significant parts of me will die with them. Now, speaking very generally... Women are a bit better at friendship obligations than men. I know lots of cases where it's the other way around. But the norms of contemporary masculinity make forging long, enduring friendships more difficult for guys. And again, speaking generally, men feel less comfortable sharing their feelings, being vulnerable, and seeking emotional support than women do. You guys, we need to kind of get over this. These are not feminine practices. They are human practices that you need for your spiritual and your mental health. All of you right now are living within the time of your lives that social scientists call the golden decade of friendship. It's a little intimidating. But it's that span of time when you have, are, or will develop the most important friendships of your life. After your 20s, statistically speaking, it gets harder and harder to make new 
enduring friends. Harder, but not impossible. True friendship requires time, effort, attention, trust, accountability, and a readiness to forgive. In short, it takes practice. I hope you see your time on this mountain as an opportunity to do just that. Talk to each other about your friendships. Conversations defined, de, de, de designed to define the relationship between lovers are commonplace, right? Consider having such conversations among your friends. What can you expect from one another? What are your expectations? Are they too high? Are they too low? Are you taking responsibility for your friends and they for you? There might be some awkward exchanges along the way, but I bet it will be worth it. Finally, my third question. How does our friendship with Jesus form and transform our friendships with one another? One of the many remarkable elements of Jesus' ministry was his loving offer of friendship. No longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. Why, asked a recent essayist, would a divine transcendent entity referred to in the scriptures as the everlasting God, the Lord Most High, not only condescend to become human, but also initiate a relationship with us defined by mutual affection, intimacy, and self-revelation. A meek and lowly God, a vulnerable God, is a critical part of the Christian story. It's part of the revolutionary proclamation that God is love. As you know, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It is the Jesus moved by this credo who extends his loving hand of friendship to broken sinners like me and you. But that's not all. Jesus here presents himself as a model of friendship. He commands us to love one another as he has loved us. And then he offers a shockingly vivid picture of loving friendship in action. Right? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Tim Keller recommends that we meditate on the crucifixion as an act of friendship. As an aid in doing so, he offers one of his favorite definitions of friendship that he takes from the Old Testament commentator, Derek Kidner. Kidner defines friendship as candor and constancy. Candor means vulnerability, openness, transparency. Constancy means commitment, faithfulness, sticking with you. So, Candor and constancy mean friends always let you in and never let you down. Right? They always let you in and never let you down. They always have time for you. They open their hearts, but will never abandon you or leave you out to dry. This is the picture we have of Jesus on the cross. Right? Naked, vulnerable, with his hands uh, nailed, leaving his arms wide open. It doesn't get much more vulnerable than that. 
He made himself completely exposed, letting you all the way in. And yet, he never let us down. Despite the entire world turning against him, abandoned by his own earthly friends, mocked, taunted, forsaken by his heavenly Father, what did Jesus do? In the greatest act of friendship in the history of the world, Jesus stayed to the bitter end. It is finished. Our deepest hunger for belonging and connection is ultimately satisfied not in the friendships we cultivate with one another, but in Jesus alone, our crucified and risen friend. He is the one who sticks closer than a brother. He is the one who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the one who holds us fast come hell or high water. It is Jesus who always lets us in and never lets us go. He knows you. He sees you. He loves you just as you are. What a friend we have in Jesus. Just as the cross of Christ fulfills our deepest longings for friendship, it frees and empowers us to exercise true friendship in the lives of one another. Yeah, we can't be Jesus for each other and we need to stop trying. But in obedience to his calling, we can pursue a life of love and Christ-shaped friendship. To love our neighbors, to take responsibility for our friends, to pour out our lives for those around us, the cross frees and empowers us to see one another, to know one another, to love one another. The cross of Christ frees and empowers even flaky people like you and like me. Pray with me. Gracious Father, thank you for the good gift of friendship. Thank you for the opportunities you give us to be formed by others in bonds of mutual affection and love. What a rare and wonderful gift. Our hearts are too often gripped by feelings of insecurity and loneliness. We pray for comfort and help. Would you enable us more faithfully to move toward one another in friendship as we seek to care well for one another? And would you enable us ultimately to find our rest in Jesus, our crucified and risen friend? It's in his name we pray.